Hello, and welcome back to Rise and Thrive Show podcast. I'm Erin Warhol, and I'm here with Mary Hayes Greco. Mary, Hello how are you again. doing? Hi, everybody. I'm good. I'm good. And I'm excited about our show today because we're going to have a long, a long time associate on that I'm eager to learn from once again. Dr. Sharon Stein McMara is with us today, and uh, we're going to be talking about journeys in psychology. Excellent. Well, Sharon, welcome to the podcast. And why don't you start by introducing yourself? Hi, I am Sharon Stein McNamara. I'm a psychologist in Minnesota, and I am currently the president-elect for Minnesota Psychological Association. I started uh, my graduate training in psychology back in the 90s. So I went to the Harvard Graduate School of Education, graduated in 91. I did my internship at McLean Hospital. Um, I've studied cognitive behavioral therapy, dialectical behavior therapy, many different types of therapies over my career. I have a special interest in working with women with trauma um, and with um, adoption issues. I myself am adopted and have made my own self a study, a piece of study over my life, um, learning from my own trauma issues. And I'm very grateful to have taken, um, I think I took it almost three years uh, of um, Mary's self-mastery class and um, have been trained in forgiveness training. So it's really fun to talk about all these ideas that have percolated over my career. Yes, I'm so glad to to know you again in the present. We met many years ago and did some forgiveness stuff together. And then you showed up again, I don't know, 12 years later or something uh, uh, at my Sparkle event and jumped, jumped into the mastery program. And uh, I've just always, always enjoyed you, Sharon, because um, you always seem to me like you are bursting with um, recent insights, like you are just so engaged in psychology, in your own psychology, in your profession and what you're learning and what you're trying with people and your own personal journey as it's unfolding around trauma. You just always, every time I talk to you, I feel like, wow, we could have talked a lot longer about that. <laughs> She's just got a lot of information in there. She's got a lot of wisdom in there. So I just really appreciate how, um, intensely engaged you have seemed to be in your own mission your own path in psychology and and all the you know the loads of experience that you've now got under your belt so um, i'm excited to ask you a few uh questions today that i've been noodling on and that you might be able to help me with so you have this professional journey in training yourself as a psychologist and inside that and next to it, this personal journey of healing yourself. What, what do you think uh, was the impetus for like saying, I'm doing this, I am training myself up in psychology. What, what called you do you think in essence? So that that's really an interesting story. I, um, as an undergrad, I double majored in English literature and philosophy. And I loved I was most interested in philosophy of mind, of like um, the mind-body problem and how is it that we have consciousness and how do we reflect on what 
where the body ends and our minds begin. And then I found out that it would be really hard to get into graduate school in psychology with that background because I didn't take undergrad psychology. So what I did is I had a crisis kind of around um, uh, 81 when I graduated from uh, undergrad at the University of Minnesota and I didn't know what to do. And I was in my own therapy at the time. And I remember figuring out things like, oh, my parents actually have different beliefs than I have. And uh, the way that they treat me sometimes is not how I want to be treating children and uh, learning that they it was a pretty shame-based family that I grew up in. And I remember having a family session and we were in therapy together as a family. And I was, my sister and I were just crying and we were talking about how sad we were. And all three kids in my family were adopted. And so we were touching on some of our grief. And instead of being empathic, my parents turned to the therapist and said, see what they do to shame us. They, they cry in front of you and make you think that we're hurting them. And I was like, oh my gosh, this, she, they have such a narrow view of, it was all about appearances. It was all about look good. Everything's fine. What's your issue? I mean, I was literally told by my adoptive mom, uh, what have you got to cry about? What does a tiny baby know? You, you were fine. You always had the best upbringing. We cared for you. You were not, you know, you have no issues here. And that was an inspiration for me to be like, wow, this psychology stuff is really interesting. So I went to, I, I ended up going to graduate school in English, getting a master's in English at the U of M because I loved school and I loved stories and I loved literature, but it wasn't going to get me anywhere. Everybody said, you're either going to end up being a, some kind of English professor somewhere or, you know, you won't really, you'll be a secretary or, you, you know, you're not going to have a skill out of this. So then I did psychology classes along with my master's and it, it was enough psychology classes to get me uh, to get me into grad school but I had a, a, a I had a higher power moment because back in I think it was 82 or 83 when I applied to the University of Minnesota they were a really really elite psychology program and they only accepted eight people a year and it was a experimental psychology more um, research and so I didn't get accepted and I was just flabbergasted. I was like, but my higher power says this is what I'm supposed to be doing. This, this feels like the right calling. So I just put it away for a while, followed my boyfriend at the time to Boston, ended up getting a teaching job at, um, it was the secretarial school, Catherine Gibbs School. I taught English grammar and just said, okay, this is my life. And then an opportunity came to get accepted to go to the Harvard Graduate School of Education, and I got accepted. And then that's that's how my path was. It all began. All mm -hmm. this fire, fire for psychology, yep. uh, got got lit and and kept going all these yeah, years, yeah. all these decades, actually. Yeah. Wow, that's that's really cool. Well, um, I've been thinking a lot about. I guess I'm going to call it psychology's journey. 
because it seems like the field itself is on a path. The field itself is is on its own journey, and you know, starting from it, you know, maybe the seminal work of Freud and then Jung and Maslow and the great minds of the last century, and then traveling through. Uh, well, should we say more edgy stuff? I don't know. In the late 80s and 90s and then going into the the era around um, positive psychology that became kind of a thing, you know, what is psychology for? And and let's be oriented towards, you know, fulfillment instead of healing pain and, and then healing trauma. I think when I first was healing a really bad, bad story in my life back in 1995, I was working with a therapist who did EMDR with me, and that is what eye movement desensitization reprogramming, EMDR. And it was like, you know, the newly minted thing back then that was really helping people change our brains around uh, the impact of trauma on us. And then it has seemed, as I've, you know, watched from the sidelines and worked with lots of clients and with psychologists too, that 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 whole trauma retraining is getting refined in different ways. Is this different now facets of now this brain spotting? And I don't know what else, but maybe you could help me with that. And just kind of like, like we're standing on a little hill, we're sort of looking at the landscape of psychology today. And it just seems like it's a moment, Sharon, because now since, since 2020, since the murder of George Floyd, and since so many people were locked down with their issues for two and a half years and with their people with issues for two and a half years, it seems like uh, it has really uh, expanded exponentially the, the conversation around trauma and the conversation around healing and resilience. And I'm kind of still waiting for the big conversation around forgiveness to start in terms of what people have been, been through recently, but I suspect we're kind of on the cusp of that. So from, from our little hill, looking over the field of psychology, what, what do you see on the landscape and what do you have the most excitement and respect for? I want to talk about, you had a, it, there was a lot in that question. So mm-hmm. let's start with, um, I was not even attracted to psychology back in, um, 1977 when I was first introduced because it was so behavioral. It was to predict and control behavior. I still remember that phrase from my first psychology class. And I'll just butt in and say, that's why I dropped out of psychology in college, because they put me in a lab with rats that I had to torture. (laughs) And it was not about like this deep, yummy, mythic psychological stuff that I like. I'm more like Jungian, but yeah, back with the rats. So there you were. (laughs) Yeah. And so, yeah, I agree. It was a big turnoff to a lot of people and it was so reductionistic. There's been harm done by psychological beliefs that are false. So for example, my parents were told when they adopted me that this child is like a blank slate, a tabula rasa. That was a psychology term of a child is a blank slate that you engrave upon it by its conditioning. Well, we now know that is absolutely false, that when children are taken from a specific ancestry uh, and heritage and genetics, those are very strong and and twins reared apart will have like 
you know, interest in the same colors or the same clothing or the, they do the same weird thing at night before they go to bed, even though they've been raised apart. So uh, behaviors are genetically transmitted as well. It's not all. So, so that's, that's been a big story that's changed. And also this nature versus nurture thing that was a false dichotomy. My personal journey has been, uh, I first learned cognitive behavioral therapy, and that was a more, it, it was at least more encompassing of like, you can talk about your thoughts instead of just, you know, watching rats in a maze. So that helped me because I had a lot of negative beliefs as a young person of things like, you know, I'm not smart enough or I'm not good enough. And then they would have you pull aside that negative belief. And then is it really too true? Let's check the facts or check the evidence. And I was able to use that enough to get more confidence to be able to get to the next level. Then I learned dialectical behavior therapy brought in mindfulness and she called the concept of wise mind, you know, and anybody who who has followed your work knows about Roberto Asagioli. And he, I believe, is what was the first person to really talk about. Well, Jung does. He was too, the but. first person to to develop transpersonal psychology, meaning we actually have a soul. We have a higher self, higher power that is that is guiding and orchestrating and healing us. So, yeah, he was the first person who was, we could say, spiritually based in psychology. Yeah. And what's the the newest training that I'm taking now is, have you heard of Internal Family Systems, uh, Richard Schwartz? I have heard of it. Oh, that is fascinating stuff. And he's just, he's it's just Roberto repackaged because he's using this concept of self as the higher self, which is the soul, the higher power, and that, that you learn self-governance through that connection with your higher self. That's right. And yet within our personality, we have uh, sub-personalities. We have smaller uh, aspects of self that Asagioli called sub-personalities. And I'm thinking, I'm not really exposed that much to internal family systems, but it sounds like if you have an inner mom and an inner dad and an inner sister and an inner brother, is it kind of like that, that there's facets of you that have been shaped by your family that are kind of playing out within you. And it's a, it's a mastery job to become aware of all of this and to pick and choose our, our thoughts and behaviors. Is that right? He doesn't use the mother father so much as he uses the, So there's the little kid parts, you know, which everybody knows about the inner child. And then there's, he calls it the manager part is the, the judger. That's like, you better not, you know, eat too much or you not, better not, you know, go drink too much or, and then what happens is there's exiles that get triggered, which are like our little trauma selves that have been hurt. And all of a sudden you're in emotional upset because your exile got triggered. And then he calls them the firefighters are the ones who come along and say, okay, we can't handle this. We're just shutting this thing down. We're going to go get drunk. We're going to try to kill ourselves. We're going to get high. We're going to do something. And that's the self according to internal family systems. And you want to bring more of this wise mind, loving self who can, say, okay, manager, you got your thing, firefighter, you want to do this, but let's think about the big picture and 
can you all get along inside? Mm-hmm. So I think that's great. I, you know, it seems to me from my, my framework that, that there's a handful of trauma therapies afoot currently, and some of them do, and some of them don't have that higher self, that wise mind, uh, that soulful uh, quality. And I remember last summer I was doing a training with psychologists. I was um, teaching a bunch of psychologists, my forgiveness work on zoom for CEs and all that. And, but some of the questions I was getting from some of the people around trauma and whatever, they, it seemed to me they were coming almost like an echo of that old behavioral stuff. Like they're coming from a really dry place, you know, like, your brain is a broken car. Let's fix it. Is it the carburetor? Is it the, you know, the uh, alternator? What's going on? How do we fix this broken brain? But I, I was in some of the people I was talking to, I didn't sense that, that yummy, lovey feeling around that, that healers have, you know, mm-hmm. that healers have that kind of ah heart and soul. <laughs> just made that up. Yummy, lovey feeling that is infusing our work in psychology and and our work with healing the brain, because it's not just the brain, right? It's the brain and everything. But um, so, so, so what's happening on, on the landscape today, especially since the last few years when there's kind of an explosion of conversation around trauma, you, you have a, a appreciation for internal family systems. Are there other um, approaches that you think have been really valuable and that you're watching? I'm not as well trained, but I know something about acceptance and commitment therapy. And I know they, that therapy also has a, you accept the things you cannot change. You make a commitment to change the things you can, if you can, and Mm. you try to sort out, but it does have some, the, the, the therapies that are most appealing to me have a mindfulness or a spiritual component, even if they don't call it spiritual, they call it like a um, ability to have non-judgmental reflection. Mm-hmm. And that's the, I think that's the golden ticket that gets, I mean, AA has that very first step, you know, of um, admitted that we were powerless over our drug. And- yeah, it sounds almost like a, uh, the 12 steps in a new package. Yes. Uh, mm-hmm. Like, uh, and, you know, big nod to the 12 steps. They've 12 steps have helped millions and millions of people since the 1940s uh, deal with a baffling and daunting disease um, of addiction. And yes, uh, this yes. Is, I, I go back to it again and again. I, I'm, I'm a lover of paths. I, I'm a lover of psychology and yoga and, you know, all the, all the interesting stuff. But again and again, what keeps me sane and brings me back is the, the wisdom inside the 12 steps. And I'm glad that there's some, some uh, expressions of psychology that are using that and maybe in a new package, because maybe some people don't want it to absolutely um, and straight on 12 steps. Um, Marsha Linehan ta- says that she, she did nothing. She did with dialectical behavior therapy was really original. She just grabbed from different traditions. And one of them was the 12 step tradition mm-hmm. um, in terms of the, having a belief that there's a wise mind and Mm -hmm. there's a bigger self that can restore us to sanity. And that, and that our journey is really a a balance and a a constant choosing between, is this where I let go and relax and accept this is the deal? 
I can't control it. Or is this where I grab myself and take charge and say, hey, I'm committing myself to this. I'm not going to do this anymore. I'm changing this. You know, what's the difference? And when when is it a let go time and when is it a take charge time? Absolutely. Yeah. And it's the wisdom to know the difference that comes from Mm -hmm. the soul, uh, the higher self, the wise mind, the higher power, whatever you want to name it. So, um, and, and Sharon, you, you've been um, in and around these things and especially um, the forgiveness training that you and I did together. How Mm -hmm. do you, how do you see this eight steps of forgiveness, the, the whole model forgiveness model that, that I've been sharing for 30 years. How do you see this um, playing in psychology's journey right now? Yeah. So let's take a tip, a person with some kind of trauma, trauma history, you know, say they were, had um, sexual or physical abuse in childhood or have developmental trauma, something like that. So what I do is I work with them on naming it, talking about it, telling their story, releasing and getting the, the big thing is getting to anger, I think, where, where you can really feel angry about that. And some therapies think that's where you stop is you just you get really angry and you say this was wrong and then you're cured. But what I have found is that that that's a piece of the journey. But in the long run, do you really just want to, you know, so, so I, I'm most familiar with several adoptees I've worked with have gotten to a point where they realized how angry they are at either their birth family or their adopted family. And then they just cut everybody off and just say, okay, I'm just going to make my life go forward. I'm not going to worry about them or expect anything from them. And that gives a peace, but until you do fully forgive you know, you're, you're living a life without those, I believe, important relationships. I, I don't want to live my life having anger or hatred towards anyone. I, I want everyone in my life to be released from negative emotion. Right. And, and you don't want to live with a sense of uh, splits and things chopped off and things uh, kept in the closet or kept over there. I have observed a number of times where maybe people needed, I think in the healthiest sense, they needed to take some space from their family and, you know, get themselves stronger and more in their authentic selves. And then, you know, work it, work their family back into their life or work themselves back in to their family in a new way. And I guess this is where I, I see the forgiveness work offering the possibility of that because just from my own uh story with my dad uh my my dad was my most difficult relationship when i was younger and we just could hardly be in the room together without being very 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 uncomfortable and uh you know for me to come home for thanksgiving and be at the thanksgiving table i think everyone in the room was very uncomfortable that my, my dad and I were in the same space, but over in the, in the first part of my journey with the forgiveness work, I, I worked with my teacher, Edith, and I forgave him very big things. These are big things, alcoholism and, and not protecting me from terrible abuse and just inappropriate stuff that a person in an alcoholic blackout can say and do that wounded me deeply. But that's all so downstream 
now. And it, it became downstream rather swiftly once I applied forgiveness to those stories. And um, so I'm assuming that you're pu pulling out your forgiveness tools out of your toolbox in your office with people from time to time. Oh, absolutely. The, the, the most out of all the steps, I mean, you know, all the steps, of course, lead up to the releasing all the, the, the pain and the anger and telling your story and the hurt. But it, it, the biggest step that makes a huge difference is when I ask someone to either reduce or release their expectations that the person could have acted differently. Mm -hmm. That shifts everything it's a that's the essence cycle. isn't it yeah that's the essence mm -hmm. of the power of that mm -hmm. model which is we have this understanding that forgiveness is the the refreshing healing moment of when you mm -hmm. release an expectation mm -hmm. that you've been attached to when you release an expectation that causes suffering yeah and and it, honestly i believe it all that that same step is in the decision about being involved with an alcoholic, say, is, is that you decide, why would I expect this person who is an active alcoholic to behave any differently? Given that, do I want to be with this person or do I want to leave? And usually when I get to that place, people are really clear, like, wow, I, I, I'm okay. I'm not going to get hurt anymore by this person drinking because I'm going to change my expectations that I, you know, am a victim of them. And so they either stay married or they don't. But what, what's interesting is that that's a, I don't know any couples therapy that really speaks to that core piece of the decision to stay or leave mm -hmm. because you, you can stay with anybody as long as you don't expect them to be different than they are. I mean, I think. And as long to... as you are, you realize I'm being realistic. Mm -hmm. I have a sense of reality going on here. Mm -hmm. I will have some boundaries. I'm not going to let them push me around or abuse me. Um, right. If they start doing that, I'm walking away, putting the boundary in place, but I'm not mm -hmm. I'm not any more outraged that they're being jerks when they're drunk because I know I know realistically mm -hmm. that they're sick. Yeah. And that this is what it is that I've let go of my expectation that at this minute that they are well. They're not well. At this minute, they are still sick. And so therefore, I, I'm gonna love them from a from a distance. I'm gonna love, I'm gonna step away and love them from a safe safe space. Yes, Erin. Yeah, I, I just wanted to go back to something, Sharon, that you said that just really caught my attention. And that is that a lot of people get to a point of anger, and they just it, it's righteous anger, and maybe they were mistreated, and maybe it was unjust, and that they see that as the stopping point. And I'm wondering if you can just talk about that and talk about when you do bring the forgiveness work in, kind of the difference that the person experiences in their in how they feel and how they see the world and all of that. Yeah, it's a delicate juncture, I think, because of course the anger is, you know, usually it's very justified and it is very righteous, you know, in terms of that it what what happened to them should not have happened. However, it's a moment in time. So so what I I invite the person to try to like, let's go back to that moment in time and comfort 
that part of yourself that got so hurt because if you bring in self or you know higher power or soul whatever and then you're going back to that moment in time you're supporting that little part of self that got so hurt and then they don't need to hold on to the anger any longer that they, they get to say okay i can move through this because it's very and, and when you say a true here. shift happens at mm -hmm. that moment a true change happens at that moment when you bring that spiritual uh comforter in to mm -hmm. help the wounded part of you it's something changes right well that they're they're not so 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 one one theory of trauma and uh, um is that when you are that hurt and you have nothing the only thing you can do is identify with the perpetrator so then sometimes you'll have people sitting there like being angry and also turning it against themselves. So, so there'd be like, I was disgusting. I wasn't worthwhile. Of course he left. Of course they beat me up. Of course they did this because I was so awful. And so then we have to bring that comforter in of like, no, no, you, you there's another way to view this. And then sometimes people will get caught with the getting angry. And it's so such a relief to not be in that uh, shame place. But but it's really the whole, you have to heal the whole thing because who wants to be identified, you know, with the, the, the angry part of the perpetrator? You don't want to go out and act out like your perpetrator did. You, you want to be higher than that, you know, have, right. have a bigger shift. That's true. I want to just um, give a nod right now to the, um, some of the important truths that came out in this recent book on trauma. What happened to you? Um, by Bruce Perry and conversation with Oprah Winfrey. And I just, I got so much out of just the basic premise of the book that it's time that we start asking ourselves uh, and each other, what's wrong with you? What is wrong with you? What is the matter with you? And ask ourselves and said, what happened to you? And what, you know, to bring in compassion and inquiry, how did a traumatic moment or year or whatever in your life shape this? And I'm thinking um, you've expressed a real interest uh, in, in different, how trauma plays out in different developmental stages in our lives too. And, and learning different things about, you know, what does what does trauma do to a three-year-old? What does trauma do to a tiny baby? What does trauma do to a 14-year-old? There's, there's different places that we're at. So I just um, would invite you to reflect on any of the, the insights you've seen in that book. You told me you appreciated this book as, as well. Yes. So, so the, the piece that was most insightful to me out of this book, it was just you know really important, I think, is he says that the earlier the loss so so you know i know a lot a lot of people it's really hard if you have an adopted child to think oh my gosh this baby was hurt by that separation from the mother but what his research says is that the brain actually forms differently when a, a new baby is looking for the smell of the mother's smell the the sound of her voice that that the baby has listened to for nine months and the touch and the, the, the taste, the food that she, even the body movements. I mean, having had, I had twin boys when I was 40 years old and 
we were so psychically interconnected that it was like uh, they I would wake up with my breasts full of milk ready to nurse and then they would wake up two minutes after that it was like I my body knew more than my brain so 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 all I'm trying to say is that that is a truth that a lot of people don't really want to look at of what level the, the, the brainstem is overdeveloped. There's an amygdala difference in adopted kids. And then any uh, trauma before the age of three impacts the brain so that that child is likely to have a bigger than normal brainstem, have a, the higher... The, a higher fight or flight response, and also have the ability to dissociate. One of the practices that we've done as a nation, which really disturbs me, is the cry it out method of, of uh, soothing an infant. What, what people don't realize is that- That was popular in what, in the 60s, right? The yep. 60s. And uh, I that was, was what people were saying, let that baby cry alone in their crib until they get tired and don't go- indulging them by picking them up every time they cried. Well, I think it was more, much more than in the sixties. I think, I think well into the nineties and the two thousands, people were doing really? the method. Yes. I, to my horror came home one time from um, having my nanny take care of my, my infant boys. And she was like, Oh, I've got this book called baby wise and I'm letting them cry it out. And I'm like, you're not taking care of my kids anymore. <laughs> you know, you're fired. <laughs> I didn't know that, that, that she was doing that. Oh. And th there's a difference between letting an infant cry for two hours until they shut down versus, you know, 10 minute increments and then soothe them. And, you know, the, so, so it's, I don't want to scare anybody, but certainly there, what I know that I was cried to dissociation as an infant and that that did affect my brain and how I had to learn how to undo a dissociative process as a, in my healing. And, and, um, and just for people who aren't familiar with the word or the idea of dissociation, it's, it's when you split from yourself, it's when you, you disconnect your essential self from your your body and you're kind of looking at things from a distance or you're phoning it in so to speak instead of being in yourself yeah it's in the most extreme for, for like like probably people have heard of the book sybil or whatever you know the most extreme is when there was such severe trauma over and over every day that you literally form different parts of self into amnesia between parts um so what used to be called that. multiple personality yeah. disorder mm -hmm. is a yeah. dissociative identity mm -hmm. disorder today but yep. you're saying that there's probably different degrees of dissociation that people have and do in different ways maybe some of them even socially acceptable it's stuff that they've learned to cope with unhealed trauma absolutely and the 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 thing i tell a lot of people with dissociative issues is the difference between dissociation and mindfulness is that mindfulness is intentional. If you intentionally choose to shift your consciousness and pray, that's a choice that your soul self is making and it's very healthy. The dissociative thing that you just suddenly like, uh-oh, somebody said something that I can't handle and I'm just going to space it out and forget that I heard it. That's not, I, I'm striving to be aware of everything. I don't want to be unaware anymore. 
we are afraid of of touching deeply into our pain and Mm -hmm. what's I have to remind myself this, even though I've seen it thousands of times and and experienced it personally hundreds of times that, you know, it's finite. My pain is finite is there's only a certain amount of it. And if I let myself go there, even for 20 minutes, let myself really go there into a sadness and let the, let the full cry come out, let the full sorrow come out. I find that uh, I'm bigger than that. You know, I'm bigger than my pain. And, uh, yeah, it's a, it's a, I think people really, really put off doing our healing work, our psychological healing work, because we don't want that. We don't want to get ugh, past that, that little uh, veil, that little stopper of denial that's keeping our feelings at bay. And we're just kind of ignoring them or we're eating too many potato chips or we're getting drunk every Saturday or whatever we're doing to not do our pain. It's actually better to do our pain <laughs> yes. to have ways of doing it. So anyway, I want to just thank you, Sharon, for um, your many years of passionate exploration and service to others and all the people that you've helped and uh, how you're, you're just still leaning in. Every time I see you, you're like, you're leaning in to learning this and sharing that. And, and yet again, it seems like you're still leaning in on um, uh, what you're learning personally and, and working with people. And uh, I'm just grateful for all the uh, insights you brought in your practice and to our podcast today. Thank you. And I want to say the same, Mary, you have been a light for me throughout my career. I was so glad to find you when I first went. I don't know if you even remember this, but you did this little workshop that really has helped me over my whole career where you were like trying to formulate the different um, parts of a business. Like you said, oh, you have to have your healer self or your artist self. And then you have to have the promoter, the manager, the, ma- the manager self, the marketer self, yes. the healer practitioner. Yes. 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 And that, and that like, oh, I was like, oh, I just have to put on these different hats. And you helped me build my business just with that workshop. Oh, it's cool. I probably only yeah. did that one time and it was probably just for you, honey. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Well, thank you both so much. That was a wonderful conversation. Dr. Sharon Stein McNamara, it's been so great to have you joining Mary and I on the Rise and Thrive Show podcast. And we look forward to hearing from you again. I bet she'd come. Would you come, Sharon? (laughs) I really enjoyed this. And I bet when she comes, she's going to be having her eyes wide open about the latest thing she's learned. Oh, (laughs) this thing. Yes. Yes. Thanks so much. And thanks everybody who's been here listening in with us. And uh, let's just keep going with uh, becoming the very best versions of ourselves and having that faith and trust that, that we are more and more able to heal trauma and bad stories. And uh, that we're all walking towards something that's much sunnier and grander than we've known before. Mm -hmm. See you next time.